All right. Good morning, everybody. Glad you guys are here. Love looking out and seeing live faces here in the building. Keep doing that. If you're out there on the fence, whether you should come in and join us, yes, come in and join us. We have a seat for you right over here and one over there. I can see them. But I love you guys who are here in-house live looking out and seeing your faces. There's no substitute for that. So thank you for coming and joining us. We are in, um, we're in a series called Blameless, a study in the life of Job. If you're new here uh, or first time maybe catching us online, um, I want to kind of apologize up front. There's going to be a lot. There's a lot to learn. There's a lot that we can learn as we go into the scriptures. And today uh, is going to be no different. There's a lot coming your way, but I hope that it blesses you as much as it does me to be able to deliver a message like this. And as much as I'm blessed even by praying my way through the study and writing the message, it's something that I love to do and I'm blessed to get to do it every week. Last week, though, I took a break. Last week, I took a break from teaching through Job and I taught a series or, or a message about the need for us as the church to be the light in a time of darkness. There's so much darkness in the world now. There's so much upheaval. No matter where you fall on the political spectrum, there's nothing seemingly that we can count on these days. Everything that has been normal to us is upside down, and what's left is right and right is wrong, and up is down, and it's just so confusing to be alive today, isn't it? So I took a break, and last week I taught specifically a message that was on my heart just about what an opportunity this is, an opportunity that we have right now, maybe greater than, than ever before that I'm aware of, certainly in my lifetime, where the darkness, the overwhelming kind of creeping uncertainty and darkness that's in gives us as Christians, as the body of Christ, an opportunity that we have never had before to be the light, to be the light. When we're, when we're out in the world and our voice just joins all the other voices, we just sound like the rest of the world. What makes us different, what Christ gave himself for is to make us holy and set apart, and that means different. That means my voice, the way I carry myself, the way I portray myself to the world should be different. And it's that difference in the noise and the cacophony and uncertainty of the world, the peace and the calm and the love and the joy that a Christian can show through the Holy Spirit, that makes us different. And that makes the word of God so effective through us in times like that. But it can also be the opposite. Since we're Christians and since hopefully when we're out in the world, we don't hide the fact that we are, it can be even more obvious when we throw our voice in with the rest of the world. And then people say, well, what's different about them? I don't see anything different. We are called to be different. And sometimes that's difficult. Sometimes it's tough. That's the message I wanted to preach last week, but unfortunately that's not the message that some of you went away with. Some of you heard early on in the message or didn't hear what you wanted to hear or heard what you thought you wanted to hear, but however that went, and you stopped right there, stopped listening further. And I'm afraid that that got in the way of you receiving what I felt that the Lord had for you. I want to be clear on this. Last week, I neither declared a winner or a loser. I didn't choose sides. I told you, most of you, how I voted I voted for Donald Trump, just to be clear for those of you who didn't hear it. But I also said, simmer down, I also said that that's not my primary calling. My primary concern as your pastor is about your eternity. It's not about this election or how it turns out. My heart and my burden is about your eternity. And by speaking truth to you and teaching truth, that is where I want to be focused. We live in the greatest country that has ever existed. And I will firmly stand on that. There is nothing that even comes close and ever has. We have freedoms and we have rights and we have processes 
that make this the best country there ever was. And so this idea of the election being contested, stolen, how, whatever terminology that you want to use, that's going to be fought out in the courts. And that we have that process. It's going to be played out there. And so here's my prayer. Not my will, but your will, God, be done in that. And so my prayers look like this. Lord, I'm going to pray for the process, this amazing process that you have gifted us as a country with uh, of courts and different branches of government that balance each other, checks and balances and, and different things like that. I'm going to pray for the process. Okay, that's where my heart is, that God's will is going to be done because God can use anything and he can use that for his purposes. And I don't want my purposes or my thoughts, what I... If we all live by what I thought was best, we'd be really messed up as a country right now. Thank God that he's in charge. And so I pray that his will is done through all of this. And I hope that that's what you hear. That being said, I love talking about politics. I love engaging in, pol in political debate and discussion. But here's what I've learned. I will talk to you about it face to face. We'll sit down over a coffee and I will chat with you all day long about politics and all the different things going on. But the pulpit here belongs to God. When we started this church years ago, God told me, you can do anything you want, but the pulpit belongs to me. And so in all this time, I haven't engaged in that political discussion or social thing. I've let the word of God speak to those things. And so that being the case, again, I will sit down and talk with you but for today, right now, let's dig in. This whole idea of the, of the scripture that I'm going to talk about today is Job's friend, Bildad. And part of it is having our notions of what's right and wrong challenged. And there are very few people who like that. Those who are willing, though, to be honest and be, to be open to what the Holy Spirit will do in their lives have that kind of response. We should always hear a message, no matter what it is, whether it's somebody we've loved and always loved or somebody that we absolutely know going in that we're not going to like what they have to say. There's something that the Holy Spirit should be able to speak to us through that. And it should help us to either solidify what we believe or maybe challenge what we believe. We just have to be open to that. Anybody that digs in their heels and says, I refuse to think any differently than I've always thought, that's hard to bring the light in that situation. If we're going to be that place, we better know for sure the rock that we stand on. And the only rock I can see that's that reliable is the rock of Jesus and his teaching. So, thank you. That being the case, let's get into it. We're going to talk about... Uh, it's Job chapter 8. We're going to jump back in. I want you to listen to this message and think about, pray about what you can apply to your life through this. Because it's not just all about teaching our way through a book. It's what can I apply? What can I take away, right or wrong? What reaffirms what I know and what challenges me to maybe think differently? We're going to talk about two uh, theological concepts, the concept of retribution and the concept of justification. Two different theological concepts. Don't need to think too much about that now. We'll talk about that more as we get into this, but let's, let's go in. Last time that we met and talked through Job, we saw Job getting berated by his friends. His well-meaning friends, okay, they had a relationship with the Lord too. Well-meaning, came to visit him, but the problem is, is that they just started hammering away at him because it was important to them that what was happening to Job fit into their idea of what would cause something like that. In other words, they looked at Job's suffering, all the things that happened to Job, and they had to be able to prove somehow that Job had messed up big time and that God was angry with them, and that's why this was happening to him. Because if they couldn't, if they couldn't prove that somehow, get Job to fess up to something that, that only he and God knew, if they couldn't make that happen, they would be forced to take a look at themselves. They would be forced to take a look at maybe everything that I had always thought is not entirely right. And nobody likes to do that. 
Most people don't. I don't like to look that closely sometimes. But Job gets in a point where he can't, he knows what's true. He knows how he's lived his life. He can't see any reason for any of this happening. But after being hammered away and hammered and beat and beat and beat by his friends, by his circumstance, he finally just gives in. He goes, I can't see any explanation for this. So maybe you're right. This is where he is. And we end up with a scripture from last time, Job 7.21. Job says, why then, speaking to God, do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I'll lie down in the dust. You will seek me and I will not be. In other words, he's tired of fighting. He, he thinks he knows what's true, but he's like, maybe I'm wrong. So, okay, Lord, just take away my sin. And this is where he is. The enemy's got him on the ropes, and he is just hammering away and beating and beating. But now that Job is on the ropes, his friend Eliphaz, who was the one hammering away a couple weeks ago, he taps out, and his friend Bildad comes in. His friend Bildad approaches this challenge from a new angle. Now, I want to introduce to you Bildad the shoe height, as it says. Here's a picture of how I picture him, not an actual photo, okay? I want to be right front about that. The guy on the right with his finger sticking out, that's Bildad, and that's exactly how I picture him. He's looking at Job. Job is going, whoa, hold on a minute, but he is sitting there with his finger. Now, up on the top right, I don't know for sure, but maybe that's Eliphaz, and Eliphaz is just sitting there going, I told him, and he wouldn't listen to me. You try it. So Bildad, Bildad is not as gentle as Eliphaz. Remember, Eliphaz went in, and he's kind of like, well, would you listen to a word that a friend might share with you, possibly? Could you hear? And so he sort of goes into it slowly. Bildad's like, ah, uh, I'm getting right at it, and he jumps right in. Now, Bildad, his name, by the way, remember in Hebrew, names have significance and have meaning. Bildad means son of contention. So, and you can, I mean, that's a fitting picture, right? He's just, he's just born to poke that finger in your chest. That's who he is. His thing, kind of the way that he lives his life. Remember, all these guys have their different theologies. You can take that picture down now if you want. All these guys have their different theologies, sort of the way they approach their relationship with God. And Bildad, he's, he's kind of philosophical in a way. But what he likes to do is he likes to pick out these tried and true concepts of the past, things he's seen work out with his parents and with his ancestors, and just apply those as truth. And he'll just repeat these, these catchphrases and these concepts, just hoping that one is going to stick and, and apply to the area. This is kind of where he is. But they all come about it with his different theological viewpoint. Remember I introduced the term theodicy, and theodicy just means the way that you reconcile bad things happening to good people. This is an age-old problem. Bad things can happen to good people. So how do you reconcile that? A lot of different ways to look at that, and that's what the term theodicy comes from. It's just, it's just a theological concept. And Eliphaz, the first friend that we heard from in this, in this string here, he just firmly believed, he knew Job was being punished for his sins. God is good, therefore, if Job is, is experiencing anything other than that, he's being punished for his sins, and it's just a result of Job's bad choices and free will. Job, you messed up, you made some bad choices, you're being punished because of it. Cut and dried, end of story. Now, the interesting thing here is he's not entirely wrong. He just doesn't have the fullness of the picture. So moving on to his friend Bildad, Bildad here, he agrees with all that, but then he adds his own little flair to it. And he says, not only that, but Job, if you repent, if you fess up and repent and turn away from that and you pass this test that God is, is placing you through, you're going to be elevated even better than you were before. You're going to be blessed beyond where you were before. But it's kind of a, of a test, and if you don't repent, you're not going to pass the test. So you kind of need to step up here. And again, he's not wrong. In the things that Bildad has witnessed in his life, repentance always leads to restoration. And sin 
hidden or not, always leads to bad things in your life. So he's not entirely wrong. It's the way it's always worked in his life. He just doesn't have the fullness of the context here. So again, whereas, whereas Eliphaz was kind of gentle going in, Bildad just jumps right in. Let's get right to the first scripture, Job 8, verses 1 and 2. Then Bildad the Shuite answered, How long will you say these things? And the words of your mouth be a mighty wind. It's kind of like, I think, the first example of the term windbag being used, right? You're full of hot air. You're a blowhard. I think that's exactly what Bildad is saying. Like, you're saying all kinds of words. In fact, one of the early translations, the Septuagint translation from from a long, long time ago, uses words, a a series of words, kind of to the effect, calling this mighty wind the spirit of pride. And, And the picture is the spirit of pride blowing out so hard that, and so forcefully that it drowns out anything else that would come your way. Like you could, you could hear truth, but you're not even going to pay attention to it because there's so much of this hot air and pride coming out of you. That's kind of the picture of what Bildad is accusing uh, Job here of. Then we get right, really right to the point of what Bildad's going to poke at here. Job 8.3. Does God pervert justice or does the Almighty pervert what is right? It's kind of a rhetorical question, right? But he's, he's not wrong. God does not pervert justice. The Almighty does not pervert what is right. He's, he's correct in that statement. But although the question is a good one, um, and the answer obviously is definitely no, But he takes this leap in logic in assuming that because God is just, because God is good and righteous, what we see happening in Job has to be Job's fault, without a doubt. He's concluded that, and again, in some cases he wouldn't be wrong, but he doesn't have the fullness of the picture, and that shows us the limit of the thinking that Bildad has. He can't see, obviously, what's going on behind the scenes in heaven. He has no idea the other things that are happening, but he's making these assumptions, and that shows the limit of the theology that he's hanging his hat on here. So think about this. Go Again, that question, does God pervert justice or does the Almighty pervert what is right? With that in mind, okay, and we know the, the answer to that rhetorical question is no, God doesn't do those things. Listen to what he says next about Job's children. Job 8.4. If your sons sinned against him, then he delivered them into the power of their transgression. He's basically saying, you're, no matter what you say or what you think, your kids had to have sinned enough, and they brought that on themselves. Your kids being destroyed in, in, a, in the storm, in the house crushing everybody, They brought that on themselves because God is good and God is just, and if that happened, it's because they did something. Again, to him, it's very very cut and dried. And Bildad here, he goes on. The very next thing he says, he equates, he, he basically says, hey, it's not all bad, though, because the worse you suffer, the more you'll be blessed. He basically equates the depth of suffering with the greatness of his reward. Job 8, 5 through 7. I'm going to read the next couple sections to you, but you can follow along. Job 8, 5 through 7. And he's just, he's telling Job this in his his best advice here. If you would seek God and and implore the compassion of the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, surely now he would rouse himself for you and restore your righteous estate. Though your beginning was insignificant, your end will increase greatly. He's basically saying, hey, if you would just seek God, then you thought it was good before? Wait and see what he does for you if you just repent and turn back to him. He's making a lot of assumptions here. Then moving on, Bildad claims, he's like, not not that I'm saying this, look at history. This is something Bildad's really good about is just pulling out history and the things he's seen and using those to apply to the current situation. So Job 8, 8 through 10, please inquire of past generations and consider the things searched out by their fathers. For we are only of yesterday and know nothing. 
because our days on earth are as a shadow. Will they not teach you and tell you and bring forth words from their minds? He's saying, don't even just listen to me. Look at history. Our parents, our parents' parents, all these things. Our days on earth are so fleeting, but look at history. That's going to prove to you that what I'm saying is right to you. And he offers, he continues to just offer these facts without the context that would make them truth. So Job 8, 11 to 13, can the papyrus grow up without a marsh? Now he's pulling out this picture that Job would know very well. Papyrus is what they use to write on. And the papyrus reed is a very, it's a very juicy kind of green, vigorous looking reed, but it only grows in water and it needs a lot of water to grow. So he's pulling out this, this kind of imagery. Can the papyrus grow up without a marsh? Can the rushes grow without water? While it is still green and not cut down, yet it withers before any plant. The picture there is of the water drying up. It's very vigorous while the water's there, but as soon as the water dries up, it's the first to go. Verse 13, so are the paths of all who forget God, and the hope of the godless will perish. He's just saying God has done this for you. He's blessed you in the past, but it can dry up as quickly as it comes. Just like the rains, if the rain stops, the blessing goes away, the reed dries up, the same is going to be with you. God is your source, but he can take that away just as quickly. Now, again, this is, this is Bildad's knowledge of the world. This is how he's seen things work, and that's what he's saying. That word there, by the way, when it talks about the hope of the godless will perish, it's a Hebrew word that's interesting to look at. The Hebrew word is konef, uh, or konef and what it means is secretly wicked. So if you look at that in terms of secretly wicked, or in other words, a hypocrite, you look the part, you say the part, you might even act the part in front of others, but that's not who you are. It's a hypocrite. So, so are the paths of all who forget God, and the hope of the hypocrite will perish. And Bildad's being very, he's got that finger, man, he's pointing it right at Job right now. But... It's not all bad because he finishes his speech. And yes, we're on the last little section of, of Job 8. This is verses 20 through 22. He, he finishes by giving him this ray of hope. Lo, God will not reject a man of integrity, nor will he support the evildoers. Yet he will fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame and the tent of the wicked will be no longer. This is sort of prophetic, but totally wrong. By Bildad, God will not reject of a man of integrity, nor will he support the evildoers. He's, he's pointing at Job, saying, basically saying, you're that. You, you lack integrity. You're an evildoer. But if you switch, God will bless you. Fill your mouth with laughter and shouting. That's joy. Joy will return back to your life. But the bottom part, those who hate you will be clothed with shame. He's picturing someone else, certainly, like all of us. We don't want to point the finger at ourselves. What he doesn't know is that he's the one who's going to be clothed with shame. That's how it plays out. Those who have turned on you will be put to shame. You can be both so right and so wrong in the same statement, and that's what he's doing here. Job is already, the Scripture, when it started out, said that Job was blameless, and God himself declared Job to be blameless. So just because Bildad doesn't know it doesn't make it not true. Job 1.8, remember this when we started out, the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. That's who God says Job is. His friends are trying desperately to prove otherwise because that's what fits their theology. It's causing all kinds of problems for everybody. God's already declared that. And, spoiler alert, God does return Job back to prosperity. We see that in the end. Those who turn on him will be put to shame. If we skipped ahead to chapter 42, you see God's wrath turning against Bildad and Eliphaz and, and all of his friends for what they had said to Job. Maybe they gave him facts but without the context that makes it truth. And ultimately then, God says, I won't give them what they deserve, but only because my friend Job is praying for you. 
That's a, that's a scary place to be. And Bildad's alluding to that here, but he doesn't realize he is one of those guys. So let's talk, about, let's talk about where he went wrong, where he really got off track. And all these guys get off track in their own special ways. Bildad's basic theology is not a bad starting point. The place where he approaches this, this situation based on what he knew, based on how he'd seen everything play out before him, um, all throughout time, based on what he knew, he wasn't so far off base. But he made the mistake of assuming that's all there was. Because that's what I've seen, that's all there is. And he hangs his hat on this idea, this theology of retribution. Now, this is where we'll get into this, and I'll explain it a little bit. The theology of retribution really just simply at its core says that God rewards the upright and punishes the wicked. Okay? Not many people would probably argue with that idea, right? Any arguments? God rewards the upright and punishes the wicked. This is a basic understanding that really um, prior... Prior to Jesus, all the old covenant and before, which is where Job and his friends live, that's all they had. That's all they knew. You do the right things. You pray at the right time. You offer the right sacrifices. God will be good to you. And if not, then all bets are off. That's really all they had. They didn't know the law of Moses. That wasn't given down yet. But they knew the ideas. They knew the concepts. And they knew them really well. The reason we know that is because later on, when the law is given to Moses, we see all kinds of verses that just back up what these guys are thinking. Like Leviticus 26, I'll just paraphrase it to you. God says, if you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments so as to carry them out, I shall give you. And in various verses, he says, prosperity, peace, power over your enemies. Uh, I'll live among you, not reject you. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. These are all the promises if you walk in my statutes. But then very quickly, verse 20, uh, Leviticus 26, 14 on, it says, but if you do not obey me and do not carry out my commandments and instead reject my statutes, then I in turn will do this to you. And I'll just list them off. Terror, hostility, famine, desolation so bad that even a conquering enemy won't want to steal anything you have because you have nothing worth any value at all. This is, if you walk in my statutes, I'll give you these. If you don't, I'll give you this. It's very cut and dried, and it's easy to see. And then moving on, Leviticus 26, verse 40, if they confess their sins and the sins of their forefathers, I'll remember my covenant, and I will remember and heal the land. So it's not only saying if you do the wrong thing, then I'll curse you, yes, but if you repent of what you've done and whatever your forefathers may have done, I'll restore blessing. So this is where their theology is. And at that time, before Jesus, it's not that wrong. It's just not applied here in context the way it ought to be. So what do you think about this retribution theology? If that's all there was, Would it be a good way to live? We'd be living like people of the old covenant, offering sacrifices and just hoping that somehow we did it right and avoid the wrath of God. You certainly weren't really looking for God's favor. You're really pretty much just looking to stay out of trouble. But it can be dangerous if you apply it without wisdom. And it fails to take into account the entire theology of justification through Jesus. Again, they didn't have that, but this is why it's so much of a blessing for us to be able to understand what Jesus Christ did for us and how this stuff that Job had to go through, the questioning, the not knowing, that's not something that we have to suffer with these days. And yet somehow we still do. It's the difference really. Now, I'm going to say this really slowly because to me it's clear, but I know it can be a little tricky. The difference between retribution theology and justification theology through Christ is the difference in saying, if you sin, you will suffer, and if you suffer, you have sinned. 
if you sin, you will suffer. Not many people would argue that, although there are plenty of situations where you see those who live very sinful lives appear to be blessed. How does that work? How does that work when your sinful neighbor who lies, cheats, and steals lives in a nicer house than you? We've got to wrap our minds around this. But then the flip side, if you suffer, you have sinned. This is where we have the question. You see somebody suffering. You see somebody standing on a street corner with no home, no clothes, and they're begging for food. Do you, like me, immediately think, what did they do wrong? What went wrong in their life? Or they need Jesus. I start throwing out judgments like candy at that point. It's not where we're supposed to be. But it's just the human nature. So this, this idea, this idea of justification versus retribution, in really, in short, it assumes that the relationship between God and his people is based entirely on our achievement. Either what we achieve or what we don't achieve. It's based on that. In other words, you get what you deserve. I'm glad I don't get what I deserve. But this idea, this idea is, is deeply ingrained and has been from the beginning. Not only this old covenant uh, thinking of retribution, but even the disciples who had spent time with Jesus and walked with Jesus, they still struggled with this idea. Because that was deeply ingrained in their history and their past. And despite hearing Jesus teach to the otherwise, they still had a hard time getting their minds around it. Even, I'll share a couple scriptures with you. Paul wrote to the Galatians, Galatians 6-7. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. It's the idea of you get what you deserve. In John chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. This is Jesus speaking. If you remember this scene here, as he passed by, he, is Jesus, saw a man from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Okay, this isn't Jesus speaking, but this is about him. Who sinned, this man or his parents? It's the same analogy of me sitting on a street corner in my car looking at the homeless man. Who sinned? What went wrong in his life? Did he have a bad upbringing? Did he make bad choices? Did somebody get him hooked on drugs? What happened in his life? I'm making this very thing. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that this would befall him? But do you remember an answer that Jesus gave to this question? When they asked him, he gave the best answer. John chapter 9, verse 3, Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. You mean to tell me that the suffering we experience on this earth might not be a result of our sin? Wow. Do you want me to read that scripture again? It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. You mean you might go through a time of affliction, a time of pain, kind of like Job, so that the works of God might be displayed in you? You mean when you face trials today, you've been laid off from your job, you have to wear a mask, your candidate won, or your candidate didn't win, or things aren't looking in the world like you want them to look, you mean it not, might not be all about you? It might be so we can show God's glory through our actions? That's where I want my mind to be. God, no matter what I see, no matter what happens around me, let you be glorified in what I do and what I say. Job's friends are in error because they just can't get that concept. It's not a concept that even rings with them. They have no context for it. But sometimes suffering, or what some people might call bad fruit in our lives, 
may not be a direct result of our evil deeds or our mistakes. A fallen world, yes, we can argue all those sorts of things, but our evil deeds may not necessarily directly correlate to bad things happening in our life. Again, I was going to ask the question at this point, who here has judged someone to be in sin because of the fruit we see in their lives? I have, and I think I'm probably not alone. This, age-old, this is an age-old problem, obviously going all the way back thousands and thousands of years, but it still rears its head today. We saw the disciples kind of struggled with that concept a little bit, but even more, more modern, I talk only 700 years ago, Anybody read Canterbury Tales ever? Chaucer wrote the Canterbury Tales in the 13th century. And one of the ideas in that book was the ideal man. The ideal man, the one to be revered, the one to be held up, the, one, the, the prototype for how he should be was the poor and the downtrodden and the put upon. That was the ideal That was the virtuous man. And the more downtrodden, the more virtuous that man had to be. Because the flip side is the religious leaders of this time were very well-to-do. And they were painted as, by nature, the evil ones. So if you're poor and downtrodden, you are virtuous and good. If you're well-to-do, rich, successful, then you're evil. Then fast forward a couple hundred years, 15th century now, we're getting closer. 15th century, it became fashionable to teach that God would not justify the evil by giving them prosperity. This is the idea that John Calvin uh, taught quite quite a bit. In other words, this, if you were well off, it was because you were blameless. If you're well off, it's because you're blameless. The more well off, the better. So it didn't matter how you achieved your riches and your success. If you were really well off, then it had to be because you were virtuous and you were in God's will, and he wanted to bless you. It's just the opposite of what we see with Job. Therefore, what happened then is that successful leaders of all kinds were considered to be blessed by God and considered to be in God's will. And what happened is when the Puritans came and they settled in America, they brought this idea with them. And ever since, it has been a struggle back and forth, back and forth amongst the church, amongst politics, over this doctrine, this idea. And the problem with both of them is that they overlook the one true life-giving doctrine, which is justification in Christ Jesus. That's the only thing that can tie this together and make sense. Now, I'm going to read you a scripture that Paul wrote to the Romans. And I want you to listen to this scripture through kind of the lens looking at the trials of Job and why a Savior in Christ was so necessary. And I'm hoping it kind of ties it together for you. Let's look at it. It's Job chapter 5, Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, exult in our tribulations, knowing That tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. I think one of the main purposes of the book of Job is to flip over our apple cart of doctrine and theology and cause us to look deeper, force us to look deeper at what we believe God's purpose is to be in our life, especially when we can't see him clearly. Bad things happen to Job. I would contend it's to elevate him. 
It's to bring him through these tribulations to a place that was higher than he could ever have been or would ever have gone on his own. And I believe the same thing. When that happens to us today, when we go through trials and tribulations, it gives us an opportunity. We can either go down that path of, of pointing out sin in everyone else or we can look at ourselves and decide that our part in this is to be the light as I taught last week. It makes me think. I can no longer look at the man on the street corner or the rich person and automatically see them through this filter of what I assume got them there. I don't want God looking at me that way, and I don't want any of you looking at me that way. Whether your success or your lack thereof has anything to do with who God says you are. That's where I want to bring my focus. I hope that that's caused you to think a little bit about that, because it certainly has me, especially when I don't see things clearly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much, Lord, that you are sovereign. And despite my limited earthly understanding of what sovereign really means, God, I can rest easy knowing that you promise you will use all things for the good of those who are called according to your purpose. So, Lord, my only job is to be in your purpose and to be used for that. So, Father, I pray that you just show me, show all of us what our purpose is in your kingdom. I pray that you help me walk that purpose out, that you help me reflect who Jesus Christ is in me and not my flesh and not my judgment, not my preconceived notions or the box that I try and put theology in, whatever my box says on it. Let me see everything through the way that you love us. Father, I pray that I just walk in who you say I am. Not who I think I am and not who the world says I am, but who you say I am. I thank you and I praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, we're going to go into a time of communion. If you're at home, grab your, grab your communion uh, supplies. It's not critical what it is. If you're here on the table in the back, by the back door, we have these single-serve cups. If you'd like to join us, you can grab those back there. Let's look at this. You know, Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, but what does that really mean? The term justification is for the forgiveness of sins, and communion is the body of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, given and shed for us for the forgiveness of sins. That's, what it, that's why we take communion. There can be no justification of sinners without the body and blood of Jesus. And that's why we partake in that here today. So Matthew 26 says, while they were eating, Jesus took some bread and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Lord, we thank you for who you say we are, not ever who we think we are, because our thoughts could never approach the glory you are reflected in us. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, while the worship team plays on, if you need prayer, we have people in the back who would pray for you. If you're out there online, anytime, you can make a comment in the chat boards there and we will bring that to our prayer team and we will pray for you. We have the crosses. If you need to pin a prayer request to either one of these crosses, just do that. We have pens and, and pins there. The power of prayer is really the only thing we have to help us see, to help us see our path through this world and to help us to be the light. I said at the beginning that we have the Holy Spirit and yet, for some reason, so many of us don't seek it. 
we picture the Holy Spirit coming up and just grabbing you by the back of the shirt and dragging you out of harm's way. It doesn't work like that. We need to seek the Holy Spirit. We need to ask the questions. And thankfully, through Christ, it's just a matter of prayer. You know, prayer just means talking to God. If you haven't had a chat with God lately about your direction and what he wants from you, let's take the time to do that now. Thank you, guys. Is it 
Oh, all your promises are yesterday. 